0: Good day, Calvary Chapel. Great to be with you and to be able to open up the word together. Uh, We're teaching out of Psalm 85 this morning and the title of our sermon is Revive Us Again. I wanna talk for a minute though about the Psalms. The Psalms are incredibly complex uh, in the same way that life in this world is complex. In the Psalms, we can relate as he contemplates the path of wisdom and the path of folly, we can empathize with him as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or as he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, or even avenge me because of my enemies. See, the psalmist has high highs and he has low lows. He has moments of great faith and moments of deep, deep depression and doubt. It has been said before that whereas scripture speaks to us, the Psalms in particular speak for us. And then we find our voice in how we speak to God, how we relate to him. In the Psalms, we find delight. We find fear, anger, joy, grief, depression, gladness, loneliness, love, and loss. And this is just a small sampling of the range of emotions in life, ones that the Psalms fully describe. But while the Psalms allow us to express our raw emotions, they simultaneously seek to shape these raw emotions into righteous ones. With the Psalms, we can approach God with brutal honesty, seeking though, to be rooted in truth and ready to submit to him. I love what Tim Keller says about the Psalms in his book, The Songs of Jesus. He says, on the one hand, the Psalms actually show you that you can be unhappy in God's presence. They give us this permission. The Psalms, in a sense, give you that permission to pour out your complaints in a way that you might think inappropriate if it wasn't there in the scripture. But on the other hand, the Psalms demand that you bow in the end to the sovereignty of God in a way that modern culture wouldn't lead you to believe. Now, where the Psalms do contain doctrine about God, we can study them, we can teach from them. They are not primarily for teaching, but the Psalms are for worship. We have five books of songs within the Psalter And these correlate to the five books of the law, the Torah, which implies that the scripture is for dialogue. It is meant to be conversational. I love what Eugene Peterson says about the Psalms. He says, our habit is to talk about God and not to him. We love discussing God. The Psalms resist these discussions. They are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to God. To him. We don't learn the Psalms until. We are praying them. And so my prayer, one of my prayers for you, for uh, this church is that we would be a people that learn to speak to God in authenticity and be a people that listen to how God will respond, that we will enter in a lifelong conversation with God through the Psalms that have been provided for us in the pages of scripture. Now, as I said, we're looking at Psalm 85 this morning. And Psalm 85 specifically is a psalm of lament. Now, maybe some of you are asking, what is lament? Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Lament follows this theme that at one time everything was good, but now all is lost. And now we're looking for any hope, any signs of life, the light at the end of the tunnel. Lament is this intense, almost violent embodied form of prayer. And at a time of intense grief and loss as we are, that we're experiencing as a county, a state, a nation, as individuals, I don't know if there's anything more important for the church than to learn this ancient biblical practice of lament. Now, a basic biblical framework for lament is a journey from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. And this can clearly be seen in many of the Psalms. But if you will, biblical lament is almost like a transition or a journey. Think about the wilderness wanderings. The people were in the land of Egypt and there was a sense of familiarity, a sense of comfort, though they were slaves in Egypt. And then they're taken to the wilderness and everything is brought into question there. Where is God? Is he truly among us? And this is this testing ground and it is purging them, cleansing them for the new work that God is doing, making them his people, bringing them into the promised land. And that is the journey that lament takes us on. Again, orientation to disorientation to reorientation. And so let's look at this lament together. I think in the first three verses, we have clearly the orientation. I'll read them again. The psalmist says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger." The psalmist begins by looking back to a time of peace, to a time of prosperity, a time, again, when everything was good, everything was familiar, everything was, in some sense, comfortable. Maybe these are the good old days or the glory days of Israel that he's imagining. And the psalm is not specific here as to what time, what era he's looking back to, but it is some point in time where the favor of the Lord was felt, where his mercy and his peace were tangibly present and at work in Israel. But I think, really, when we look at what the psalmist is talking about here, he's not simply looking back to past glories, for those are often optical illusions, right? We we remember you ever do this where you you remember a past relationship and all of its glories, and then you talk to your friends and they tell you, oh no no, you were a mess in that relationship and that was bad news and it would have never worked out, and you need that kind of clarification. You need community to come alongside you and help you see. Um, Hindsight clearly, because we can often uh, over-glorify past glories, past times. But the psalmist here, he is not just looking back to past glories, but he is looking back at past mercies. He's looking back to the favor or mercy of the Lord. Listen to this again. He says, you favored you restored, you forgave iniquity, you covered sin, you withdrew wrath, you turn from anger." The psalmist is giving his focus entirely to God's historical acts of grace and mercy on the people of Israel. And I love that scripture constantly does this for us. It constantly takes us back to who God is and what he has done. And it rehearses for us God's faithful acts in history. And we need this. We need a constant reminder of who our God is and what he's done. We need to be reminded that he is the one who gives favor We need to be reminded that he is the one who restores. We need to be reminded that he is the one who forgives. We need to be reminded that he is the one who covers sins. We need to be reminded that he is the one who turns from anger and wrath. So this is the orientation that the psalmist had, and he's looking back at this. And now we move into the disorientation section of the psalm, verses four through seven. Let me read that for you. It says, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Take us back and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your chesed love, O Lord and grant us your salvation. Now from contemplating the past mercies of the Lord, the Psalmist moves into the current plight and his prayer and the implication is, but where are you now? You favored, you had mercy, you turned away from wrath, you did all these, God, you were were so present and active in our lives. But where is all of that goodness and favor now? Why aren't you doing those things any longer? And of course, his prayer, restore us, do it again, God. He asked, will you be angry forever? How long is this going to last? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? I was thinking about this. The question, is this what our children and their children's children are to expect from you, Lord? How long? I think sometimes we can enter into the Psalms and think that the, the Psalmist is questioning God's character. He's not, he's not necessarily asking the why question, but because the Psalmist believes that God is the covenant God of Abraham, that he is the true and faithful God. And so in the Psalms, the question is not again, why, but is how long, How long till you redeem? How long till you have mercy again? How long till your salvation appears? And of course he finishes this portion with a plea to God, show us your steadfast covenant love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation or deliverance. I just want that to settle in for a minute this question of how long, this moment of disorientation. Because I imagine that at this moment, many of us feel the same astonishment that the psalmist felt. We find ourselves living at a time of great fear, sorrow, a time of great disappointment. Many of us are being faced with situations and dilemmas that we never wished for, we never planned for, we never expected. There've been layoffs and furloughs and closing down businesses, burying dreams that we worked so hard for. Some of us have lost opportunities that we will never be able to get back. Your uh, highly anticipated wedding day, something that you dreamed of your whole life and now that that day has come and gone and it was nothing like what you thought it would be, like what you had planned for. Maybe it was your first baby shower. It was your senior year of high school and you're doing it remotely. You're doing it on Zoom, just things that you never expected. Maybe for you, it was your mother's 60th birthday and you missed it. You were not there to celebrate and honor her. And the list goes on. And I think for these and a thousand other situations, there is no redo. We can't get back these moments. And this is something to lament. This is something to give to God. Why? How long? Lord, do you see the pain? Do you see my frustration? I'm angry. I'm disillusioned. I'm wondering what is going on. Let me say this as well. If you have not let go of the past, and are still longing for what was lost and wanting to get back to that, I want to give you permission right now to grieve what was lost and to lament this to the Lord. Maybe you're one of those individuals that just kind of holds it all and just grins and bears, just piles it on. This is not the biblical idea of prayer. God calls us again and again to pour out our complaint to him. Remember, Peter tells us that we are to cast our burdens on the Lord, casting all of our cares on him, for he cares for us. We are to pour out our hearts to him. And so I want to give you permission to do that. Pour out your grief your anger, your frustration, your disillusionment to the Lord if you have not already done that? And will you walk with me now through this journey? Because I believe we have to honestly look at our situation and realize we are not going back to what was. We are in transition to something new, just like Lament, orientation to disorientation to reorientation. We are on our way somewhere and I believe we are on our way to reorientation to the good things that God has waiting for us on the other side. But right now we are in the disorienting liminal space. Ruth Haley Barton defines liminal space as this. It's a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be but where the biblical God is always leading them. It's when you have left the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It's when you are finally out of the way. It's when you are between your comfort zone and any possible new answer. And if you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. I know that many of us find ourselves exactly in this situation. How long, oh Lord, I'm feeling so just lost. I'm in the fog, I'm in the cloud. I have no idea what's next. I have no idea how to even order my life or plan or prepare any of those things. And God is asking you to let go. Let go of that control. Let go of what was past. Grieve it, lament it, bury it, but let it go. And listen to where the psalm goes next. I love this. In this Psalm of Lament, we actually have uh, two verses that are our transition into the reorientation. Here's the transition, verses eight and nine. After making his plea for mercy, his lament to the Lord, the psalmist quiets himself and listen to what he says. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Listen to that again. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him in order that glory may dwell in our land. If we're to understand how the Psalms work, we must pay attention to verse eight. The psalmist has said his piece. He is, he's just gotten it all out. It's like this emotional vomit, if you will, right? But now he shuts up. He quiets himself. He listens. It's very similar to what we find in Habakkuk too, where Habakkuk is like, God, how could you send the Chaldeans? How could you send the Babylonians? How can you do this? God, aren't you righteous? Well, what about Israel? And he's got all these questions that he's asked God. And then he says, okay, I'm done. I'm going to set my face and I'm gonna see what he will say to me. The psalmist has said his piece, but now he shuts up and listens. Why? Because he's talking to God. His complaint is to God. He's in a wrestling match with God. It's not just that he's talking about God. And remember the Psalms are formational songs and prayers for the people of God. They're teaching us how to wrestle with God. They're teaching us how to have a conversation with God. And the Psalms take our raw human emotions in response to evil and suffering and injustice and everything else wrong with life in a fallen world. And they turn them, they transform them, they reshape them into righteous emotions emotions and responses. In the Psalms, God meets us where we are, in the fog, in our confusion, in the darkness, in our anger, but he does not and he will not leave us there. The Psalms teach us to speak to God in honesty and authenticity, then to quiet our souls so we can hear what God will say and we can respond to Him in obedience and worship. We can be reformed by Him to feel what He feels, to respond the way He would respond in righteousness and truth, in justice. In mercy, See, the Psalms are this incredible tool for reshaping our desires, for reshaping our lives, our emotions, our angers. Really, I think the Psalms are meant to bring us to that place. You can see this again and again in the Psalms. They're meant to bring us to that place where we exhaust all anger, all false hope. We exhaust everything and then, We fix all our hope, all all of our expectations, all of our fears and doubts on God, the God who alone rescues and redeems. Remember the Psalm when he says, I lift up my eyes to the heavens. Where does my help come from? He answers, my help comes from the Lord who make heaven and earth. He who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. He who watches over Israel will protect. See, the psalmist exhausts all of these hopes to refocus his hope on the true and the living God, the only God who rescues and redeems. And so now I wanna ask you, are you there? Are you ready to listen Are we at a place individually, collectively, culturally where we are ready to actually listen to the Lord and to get his vision for our lives, for our community, for the world, to lay down that dream, to bury it, to give up that vision, to surrender our ideals and our ideologies, or maybe even idols that we have placed our hope and trust. in, are we ready to hand those over? Now, please hear me. The visions that we have for our lives, the dreams that we pursue are not bad. I mean, the last thing of course scripture would want is that we would be these apathetic creatures, that we would just plateau, plateau and then that would be it. No, God wants us to cultivate. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become fully human in his image. But so often the dreams that we have for our lives, the visions that we have for our lives are less than what we were created for and what God desires for us. We settle We get comfortable. I think of C.S. Lewis when he talks about God's hopes and dreams for us, God's blessings and pleasures that he has waiting for us. Remember, he tells that story or that parable of sorts about human beings being like those who are playing with mud pies in the garden when God is inviting us to a holiday At sea, and he talks about how we are just so easily pleased with the kingdoms that we build, with the visions for our own lives. But God brings us through the wilderness journey. God is the one who takes us into the liminal space so so that he can do for us what we would not dare to do for ourselves. He will discipline us. He will bring us through those seasons of pain and difficulty in order to grow us. Remember what it talks about in Deuteronomy 8. God says to Israel, he says, I brought you through the wilderness. I caused you to hunger. I caused all these things to happen to you so that you may know that you do not live by bread alone, but you live by my sustaining word, my powerful word. That is what gives you life and sustains you. God brings us through these seasons so that we can have a greater vision for our own lives, a greater vision for the world so that we can have his vision. Are we ready to hear that. See, God's mission is not to make our lives comfortable and perfectly at ease. His desire is to raise us and the whole creation from the dead, to bring us into the new creation. His desire is to take sinners from the bottom of the pit and exalt them among the kings of the world. We are going to rule and reign with Christ. And this life is a training For the eschatological age, are we preparing for that? Are we growing into that? And many times we are not, we've plateaued. And so praise be to God that he leads us into the liminal space, that he brings us through these journeys of lament. Listen to what it says. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. In order that our land will be filled with his glory. Listen to that. His salvation, God's salvation is brought near to his people. God has brought us in. He has saved us by grace. He has lifted us out of the pit of sin and selfishness and death so that our land will be filled with his glory. God is taking us somewhere. He's taking us to the new creation and God wants to use you. He wants to use me to use this community here at Calvary Chapel in such a way that this city, that this county will be filled with his glory. It would be filled with his glorious presence. Church, are you ready to receive that vision? Will you let go? Will you bury the past? Will you lay it down? And will you listen to God's vision for your life, God's vision for this community, God's vision for the world? The psalmist now takes us into the reorientation, verses 10 through 13. He says, Listen to this. This is so incredibly beautiful and poetic. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Okay, that's all poetic and beautiful and wow. Wow. What does it mean, right? Sometimes, maybe we probably feel that way in reading scripture. What's going on here? In verse nine, the psalmist speaks for a desire of both the Lord's peace and his glory to fill the land. Many commentators believe this ties this Psalm to the post-exilic time of Israel when they had come out of Babylonian exile. And it's actually being tied to the vision of Haggai 2, verses seven through nine. I'll read that in a minute, but you'll remember the deliverance from Babylon was followed by very lean times, economically, physically, and spiritually for Israel. The people were devastated. They were pessimistic. They were fearful of their neighbors at that time. They were not well-liked. In the land, they were without hope. But in the midst of that disorienting space that they were living in, God gave a vision to Haggai. And the promise was in that desolate time, that desolate desolate situation, that the glory that had departed from Israel, from the land, would return that God himself would reside in the land once again, not just in the temple, but God would fill the whole land with his glory, his presence, and his shalom. Very similar to what we read in Haggai 2. Let me read it for you. God says, I will shake all nations And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty, for the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house that looks so dilapidated, so disappointing, so leaving us disillusioned, The glory of this present house, he says, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Church, I believe we are seeing this vision unfold. This is what is happening currently. Now, whether this is what Haggai specifically spoke of, I cannot say. But I do believe that God is shaking all nations. I mean, it's hit me multiple times during this pandemic. Every nation under heaven has been radically affected physically, economically, socially by the pandemic. And even the church has been shaken. We've been shaken out of complacency. We've been shaken out of comfortability, out of settling for being at home in Babylon, at home in the world, at home in culture, just plateauing. We've been shaken out of that. And I believe God has allowed us to come to this point that we might cry out to Him in renewed fervor with this psalm Revive us again, O Lord. Give life, O Lord. And He is doing this because He wants to bring fresh presence and glory to the earth. God is on the move. And he is shaking things up so we are ready when he pours out his spirit and this work that he's going to do. It reminds me so much of what the apostle Paul, when he had that moment that he spoke of to the Corinthians, he says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But listen to this. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We have placed all confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. Church, let me say, he has revived his people again and again and again. And I believe that he will do it again just as paul says here he has rescued us he will do it again martin lloyd jones he said something similar about revivals Listen to this. He says, read the histories and accounts of every revival that has ever taken place. You will invariably find this that one man or woman or the group, the little group of people who have been used in this way by God to bring revival, have always known a state of utter desperation and final despair. Every single one of them. Read the journals of Whitfield and Wesley, read the life history of all these men and women, they have always come to this place where they have realized their utter and complete impotence, their final paralysis. There's the Red Sea. Here's the enemy. There are the mountains. They're shut in. They're shut down. They are crushed to their knees. It is always the prerequisite. It is always the moment at which God acts. Oh, if that doesn't hit home, I don't know what does. That, just that line, they are shut in and they are shut down. It is always the prerequisite. It is always the moment at which God acts. Oh Lord Jesus, act for us, revive us again. Lord, we have come to that place. Now here's a question though. If God wants revival, why doesn't he simply do it? If this is true, if God has brought us this place, why doesn't He just do it then? Revive us again, O Lord. Do it. Well, when you look at the story of Scripture, you see this pattern with God God loves to partner. God loves to bring people along with him. God loves to make disciples and apprentices of human beings. He's been doing it since the garden up till now. It's been his plan from the beginning. Remember that Adam and Eve would partner with him, filling the whole earth with his image and with his glory. The New Testament tells us that this is why we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, to be sent on God's mission to fill the whole earth with his glory, to be the light of the world, to be a holy priesthood that would stand in the gap between God and the sinful world, that we would be a city on a hill. That same invitation of holy partnership stands today to the church. And here's the vision from Psalm 85, that the righteousness of the heavens, the Lord and the faithfulness of the earth would work in concert hand in glove, a holy partnership, bringing about God's glory and presence in our city, in our county, in our world. Church, I believe this is what God is doing. He's shaking us up out of complacency to prepare us for that glorious presence that he desires to pour out on this world. The question is, will we be ready? Or will we find ourselves unaware, disillusioned, stuck where we are, missing out on his presence and blessing? Now, for those of you who are saying, no, I do not wanna be unaware. I don't wanna miss out. Yes, I want to partner with God. The question is, well, then how? How do we do this? How is this done? Well, the psalmist says he ends with these words. Righteousness will go before him, and make his footsteps away. His footsteps give us the way or blueprint to walk in. For revival, we need, we absolutely need the fire of God. God's grace, his favor, his mercy, his spirit to blow through our county, our city, our lives, our church. We need the fire of God, but we also need the form. We need spiritual formation in the way of Jesus. It seems to me that by and large, the church in the West has forgotten that Christianity is about following Jesus. It is about discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus. It's not about taking some advice from Jesus, using him as a casual role model, having a casual encounter or acquaintance with him. No, it is about following him in his overall way of life. It's not about creeds and confessions, though those are wonderful. It's not about buildings and styles of worship. We found that out during this pandemic though those do have their place. It's not and has never been about political parties or presidents. Christianity is about being formed into the image of Jesus because of the grace of God coming to us through the good news. And now it's about journeying through life, following Jesus and his cruciform posture through all the ups and downs, imitating him, being with him. Church, being with him, spending time with him as with a friend, letting his life rub off on you and influence, allowing Jesus's voice, Jesus's life, his deeds, his actions, his posture to be the number one influence of your life be with him. It's about becoming like him, bearing his image so that when people look, like, look at us, they say, there is someone who follows Jesus. There is someone who puts the life of Jesus on display. And it's about doing what he did. So that, as I said, the life of Jesus is made known through our lives so that God's glory in the image of Jesus might fill this county and city. It's a journey on the way with Jesus. That's how the early church described it. It's the way. On this way, we follow Jesus. We practice being with him. We practice becoming like him. And finally, we practice doing what he did. So let me ask you this, is your prayer for revival a prayer to be brought deeper into the image of Jesus? When you pray that prayer, when you hear that phrase, revive us again, O Lord, is it to be made more like him? To bear his meekness, to share his humility, his servant posture, his selflessness, his suffering, his power, his faithfulness, his kindness, his goodness. I was listening to a podcast the other day by a pastor in Australia. He's also a cultural commentator, a guy named Mark Sayers. And it's very interesting to listen to what those outside of America are thinking and observing about what's going on in the US right now. And this is what he said, and he said, He's well versed in history, the history of the church, the history of revival. And he said this America is prime for revival. We can see many of the same patterns that have happened in history before revival has broken out. But he said, This is the question: Will it be a Jesus revival? Will it be an authentic Jesus revival? Church, I believe that really depends on us. That depends on us. Will we allow this moment, this shaking to reshape us to be Jesus people, to be kingdom of heaven people, to see, once again, this county, this city filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Will we be those who hold on to our dreams, our ideals and ideologies that die on those hills? Or will we surrender them and take up the way of Jesus? Will we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let him take care of everything else? I'll close with this. Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, says this, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. I believe that church, this God has brought us through this lament, through this disorienting liminal space to strip us, to bring us back to the way of Jesus so that he might send his holy fire upon that image. And we might see great renewal and revival. Will you respond to the work that the Lord is doing? Will you partner with him? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, open our eyes and our ears, open our hearts to the ways that we have shut ourselves off to the hope and redemption that can only be found in Jesus. Make us channels of grace, peace, and good news to those around us. Revive us again, O oh Lord. Lord, we don't want to ignore the state of the world. On the contrary, we remember our call to be the people of the good news who point away from man-made solutions to the hopelessness and meaninglessness that we see so pervasive in our culture. And we point to our only hope in this world, Jesus, our King. We point to the hope of the kingdom of the heavens. Be with us, abide with us, work in us, work through us, Finally, Lord, revive us again, we pray. We ask this in your name, amen.